0: Good evening, good evening, and welcome to episode fifty-one of the Political Mike podcast. So much has gone on in this week—very eventful. Um, it seemed like it would never happen, but the House finally passed the infrastructure bill, sending five hundred fifty billion dollars uh, in new government funds to um, to upgrade the nation's physical uh, infrastructure over the next uh, five years. The Build Back Better reconciliation uh, bill is still pending. Uh, former Trump advisor uh, Stephen Miller. Um, White House Personnel Director Johnny uh, McEntee and Press Secretary uh, Kayleen McEnany are among a new batch of senior Trump White House aides subpoenaed Tuesday by the House's January 6th Select Committee, and fireworks go off in the courtroom as the judge presiding over the Kyle Rittenhouse trial repeatedly chastises the prosecutor, resulting in the defense team asking for a mistrial with prejudice. And one of the three white men standing at trial for the death of Ahmaud Arbery uh, said that they had the 25 year old black man trapped like a rat uh, before he was fatally shot. Here with me tonight are uh, Maya Perry, who um, just recently graduated from Howard University School of Law, um, is a Howard lawyer and worked as a paralegal and served as a graduate senate intern in the North Carolina General Assembly. Um, She at Howard Law um, worked in the civil rights, um, worked primarily in areas of civil rights law and administrative law. Um, During her time at Howard Law, she served two semesters with the Howard Law Human and Civil Rights Clinic, um, and she will be continuing her career in public service with a policy council position focused on voting rights and elections work. Maya, it's always a pleasure to have you. Thanks for being back on. We also have Nate Honore, who's a 3L at Quinnipiac University School of Law. Uh, Great to have you, Nate. You always bring a wealth of knowledge with you when you're here, so I'm grateful for that. Um, We also have with us Ethan Zebediah. Uh, Washington, DC lawyer, and one of the hosts of the Black Agenda podcast. Uh, Ethan, thanks for being here, man. I'm excited to have you on, or a night like this especially. Um, And last but certainly not least at all, uh, Joy Vendura, uh, who's a 1L at SMU Dedman School of Law in Dallas, Texas. Uh, She's also a recent graduate of Oakwood University in Huntsville, Alabama, where she earned a bachelor's in political science uh, with a minor in Black World Studies. I didn't realize until after I assembled the team together that this is all legal minds. So I'm excited about that. Uh, but I want to start off the conversation by focusing on the infrastructure plan. Um, you know, this is a very big achievement. You know, when you look at presidential administrations, there's always that landmark piece of legislation that really defines uh, that presidency. For President Obama, of course, it was the Affordable Care Act. Uh, you go back to um, you know, the Johnson administration, it was the, the, the Great Society programs, Medicare, Medicaid. Um, you know, you go back to the Roosevelt administration, Social Security, uh, the Kennedy administration, of course, you know, th- that was cut short, but you had the Peace Corps. Uh, for Biden, though, it seems as if infrastructure is his thing. And uh, the House passed the infrastructure bill late last Friday, with a vote of 228 in favor to 206 opposed. Fulfilling a major priority for President Biden's domestic agenda and cementing a political victory for Democrats, uh, this happened after a completely wild day, though. And honestly, um, there were three bizarre months that actually preceded that day. Um, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi intended to bring it and the larger bill, both the bill, the Bail Back Better Bill and the Infrastructure Bill, to the floor for vote on Friday, but her plans collapsed quickly after a handful of moderate uh, members insisted the spending package uh, receive a score from the Congressional Budget Office. Progressive House Democrats insisted for months that any vote on the infrastructure bill tied to the broader social spending package um, had to be tied together for fear that some moderate Democrats will not vote on the Build Back Better uh, plan. Um, but Friday evening came, and once the group of moderates issued a statement expressing a commitment to eventually vote uh, for the spending bill, uh, Congresswoman Jayapal announced that her caucus would vote on the infrastructure bill, essentially uh, ceding the group's initial reti- uh, requirement of only voting on the two bills in tandem. So I want to ask you guys, um, you know, was it a mistake to go ahead and concede for the on the progressive part? Um, are we in a position where, you know, the House Democrats' leadership to move forward with the bipartisan infrastructure deal actually dooms the chances of actually getting the Build Back Better bill passed? now that the infrastructure bill, that everyone seemed to want to come first, conservatives, uh, conservative Democrats, that's now going to be signed into law by President Biden on Monday.
1: I wouldn't say so, Mike. Um, and before I begin, uh, very happy to be here uh, with everyone. Um, also in recognition of Veterans Day, um, you know, uh, want to appreciate the service of all men and women who have served in uniform. Um, But uh, to the point, um, I think that you have to look at the political reality of the moment um, coming out of a very, I think we can all agree, a very brutal um, election across states um, last week, uh, and the reality of the fact that um, the two holdouts in the Senate, Manchin and Sinema, um, were very willing, it seemed there at the end, they were very willing to um not get anything passed whether it was the BBB or the uh the bipartisan infrastructure bill I think those political realities realities um just came to a head uh last week and um it became very evident that the bipartisan infrastructure bill if the Democrats were to have any future um as far as a possibility of having a congressional majority in 2022 uh, they had to get something passed the bipartisan infrastructure bill was already there um it seems that uh Santa Manchin was willing to make certain concessions and, and to um in order to uh secure his vote even for the BBB um I think if anything the bipartisan infrastructure bill uh will end up being um for one I believe that it probably should have passed already um when, when the votes were first out, it was always more popular than the BBB was. And so it probably should have already passed. But I think if anything, it, it definitely greased the skids for the BBB um, to come later. I think this is actually a very good move by Democratic leadership in, the con- in Congress.
2: I want to just chime in quickly and say, I was going to say pretty much to the same sentiment, I agree. I think that You know, they're kind of desperate, like you said, for some sort of momentum right now. And I feel like one of the issues that I have had so far with the Democratic Party, especially under this administration, is that, you know, I don't see Republicans usually doing this, trying to build this bipartisanship and camaraderie. And I know it's usually, you know, for other reasons, there's different power dynamics involved and there's different numbers usually when it's on their side. But it's just a general idea that I feel like they have been a lot more. I don't want to say forward thinking, but more, I don't know, like more demanding when it comes to their objectives and their goals, not really caring about, you know, what the other party thinks, not trying to appease anyone, but the people they need to get, you know, whatever measures they want across. And so I feel like for once, you know, this wasn't quite that same kind of uh, move, but something to that, uh, you know, something in that regard. And I think the Democrats needed that. A lot right now after getting, you know, kind of brutalized a little bit last week. So I agree. I I think it's good for them. Like you said, it should have probably happened already. Um, And if anything, I think it'll help kind of build some camaraderie, not just, um, you know, amongst Democrats, but in the, you know, in the spirit of bipartisanship that they like to promote so much. I think it puts forth a good faith effort that kind of sets a good foundation as they move forward and talks about um, the Build Back Better plan going forward.
3: And, I think. Yeah. Oh, go ahead, Nate. Um, I think it's possible that maybe it do it doomed or at least slowed down the chances of the Build Back uh, Better plan getting passed. You know, the bipartisan deal was the progressive Caucus's kind of leverage in order to ensure that their priorities would be passed as well. You know, as we all know, the bipartisan infrastructure deal is a stripped down version of everything Joe Biden wanted to include in his overarching infrastructure plan so he kind of split them in two and said this is what the Republicans will go for and the rest is what will pass the reconciliation um, but it also kind of did work as I guess a show of good faith to the moderates within the party who were allowed to uh, doom or at least slow down the the uh, in the sorry the reconciliation bill um, I will say, however, that the it's on the progressive caucus now to ensure that the uh uh sorry, the reconciliation bill, the Build Back Better Act passes before the end of the year. Because heading into midterms, the same moderates, the same centrists in the party that are that are blocking this bill aren't going to want to spend a bunch of money because Democrats are still afraid of being labeled tax and spend. And that's exactly what this bill does. So if they want to get it passed, then they're going to have to start, you know, whipping votes now. That's a good point. And, and look, you know, Biden, I think, was strategic
0: in the way he, you know, the, the Afghan withdrawal was a little over two months ago. Now we're focusing on investing in ourselves uh, with, this re, with this infrastructure bill. Um, he's kind of shifting the focus away so that we could become more competitive on the global stage in terms of climate, you know, addressing Glasgow. Uh, last week uh, talking about united states joining the paris agreement and apologizing for his predecessor to pulling us out i mean there seems to be just a you know kind of like a checklist on his uh, domestic agenda um and even on the world stage that he's checking off but to your point maya you know in terms of virginia senator tim, tim kane actually told reporters after the election that democrats blew the timing by not passing the legislation sooner uh, which would have given democrats a legislative victory to campaign on Now, I'm going to be honest. Uh, I think a lot of folks um, even conflate the two bills um, because a lot of people are ill-informed as to what's in the infrastructure bill and what's in the Build Back Better uh, plan. A lot of people, I think, are overestimating the amount of conservatives that are actually opposed to the infrastructure bill just for the sake that they're opposed to it. Um, And let me just pause here and say, you know, the expressed expressed views and opinions of myself and everyone here on the platform uh, are our own. And are not reflective of anyone else, but you know, in addition to that, you know, Ethan, you know, you mentioned the fact that this Veterans Day, and this is the first Veterans Day in twenty years where we're not at war, and so there kinds of, it, it seems to be a perfect timing with this infrastructure package. You know, we're shifting away from investing into these military uh, adventures, and 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 really fo- focusing on, you know, <laughs> rebuilding, you know, here at home, um, and and you know, I'm wondering if. That kind of tone and message would be enough. You know, I know a lot of people said if the Democrats deliver, um, that's what's really going to determine, you know, their electoral chances next year um, and beyond. Uh, I'm wondering if there's if that's if that has any merit in your view or if you think, look, it doesn't matter because you're you're even seeing conservatives just opposing the fact that just this bill gives Biden a win altogether. Uh, What do you
1: guys think? I think to a degree, um, it, it's for one like you said. It, it, it uh, no, none of the public, the mo- the majority of the public doesn't really know what's in this bill. Um, I don't know, like it, that does open itself up to you know spend from media, spend from um, you know uh, malintent uh, politicians, uh, whether they're Republican. Or Democrat, there were a handful of progressives who came out and spoke out and uh, against the passage of the Bipartisan Infrastructure Bill because it uh, leapfrogged the BBB. Um, I don't think that that. I think that the folks who voted in favor of it, whether they are Republican or Democrat, have the opportunity to reset the narrative here because they are the ones who actually voted in favor, and they're the ones ultimately got it passed and will, you know, be able to say that they signed something that I, I, I still, think I still believe that passing legislation, especially legislation, like an infrastructure bill, something that we've been asking for, and we've been hearing about in media and in political news for 20 something years. Um, it's still going to be more advantageous than, you know, voting against something like that. So I think that the public Is really going to give a level of credence a level of deference to uh those who voted in favor of it if they're willing to step up to the plate and to craft a narrative around why this was important and why this is something that's beneficial for the american people now if they continue to sit back or to play defense to you know the marjorie taylor greens or the aocs who are speaking negatively about the bill then you know they're going to be subject to what happens if you know, they're not setting their own narrative, but I think they have the opportunity to set a, a more positive narrative about, you know, a, a landmark piece of legislation, frankly. And this also comes with, you know, what seems to be
0: gripping the, the attention of, of a lot of Americans, the price of inflation, you know. Um, Richard Lowry of the uh, Politico uh, actually wrote a piece, uh, really comparing Biden's handling of inflation so far to Jimmy Carter's and of course he met, he acknowledges that the inflation going on now is in nowhere near the, the you know nowhere near as bad as the inflation of the late 1970s but he does say that you know makes he makes the case that pushing forward with this domestic agenda with the Build Back Better plan and even with Mansion looking to seemingly looking to grab onto any opportunity to to be opposed to it Uh, and to portray himself to his constituents as the fiscally conservative one. Um, I'm wondering if that, you know, selling of the long-term benefits of the infrastructure bill would still resonate with the public when they're dealing with this short-term problem, in your view?
4: Yeah, so for me, I think that that's where my biggest issue is, Um, is it resonating long-term. I think that when you look past, biden's you know presidency or potential presidency however long that could last and look into those long-term effects um i think that for a lot of americans and also when you look at the history of just like these kind of plans that are you know put in place to impact like education and put in place into put in place to impact these things that we as everyday people deal with um i feel like the risk tends to be lower than the reward And so for us, as for me, at least, as a regular, you know, working American, I kind of question, like, where is this long term? How is this long term going to affect, you know, the regular working class American? Um, And I think that for most Americans... I mean, most people probably don't think in long terms in, terms in terms of politics, but I do think that people think in long terms in terms of their children, their preschooling, their education. And so when you look at this bill, I think that it poses the question for a lot of Americans, what does this mean for me after Biden is out of office? What does this mean for me, you know, when whoever the next person is in office? And I think that for a lot of Americans, at least for me, um, it's kind of like, I just don't know if the risk is as high as the reward and not saying that it's not worth it, but I think that it could be better explained to the regular person, better, you know, quantified to somebody who's not as, you know, politically adapt or as politically, um, you know, Aware as you or myself or you know Nathaniel or whoever you know, so it's just like I just don't know in terms of how that relates and resonates with the everyday person in terms of long term solutions. And as a voting person, how do you think about that? As the how do you perceive that rather for the person who you're voting for? If you can't see that the way that you know their their plan is working, how do you see that past the four years or two years or six years, whatever it is? So I just think that. In terms of long-term um, rehabilitation and long-term impact, it makes it hard to kind of f- figure out where you're going to be short-term in the next one year or two years as just like a regular, you know, American facing inflation and facing all these different issues that I feel like are arising. I just feel like maybe the, the those now issues are not being addressed as readily as they need to be um, by the current Biden administration. So...
3: I think, um, you know, the rule of thumb as far as being a president is that when everything starts to fall apart, you kind of break glass and blame the last guy. So Biden has the easiest uh, example to do that, not only because Trump was so unpopular, because he was elected because of Trump's specific handling of COVID. So the Biden administration, or at least its surrogates, have been kind of, or at least attempting to argue, they haven't done a very good job of it, but they've been attempting to argue that inflation and these higher costs are a result of Trump's COVID policy and that the inflation will resolve itself. Well, you have to actually get on the airwaves and say that, otherwise you let the Washington Post run stories about people who are benefiting from the child tax credit spending more money than they have to on milk. Um, now, let's be fair. You know, When I go to the store and I see some prices, it's like, what am I, you know, why is this so much? But, you know, if we're you know, you have to tell people this is, this is, uh, under me, this is going to pass. Right. And after this is over, then look at everything that we can do. So we have the child tax credit that gives families and taxpayers, uh, um, money, more money than we used to for every child that's in the bipartisan expense, extending that is in the, uh, build back better bill. And that's why you need to call your representatives and tell them to vote for it. Uh, Childcare is really expensive. A lot of people who aren't working aren't working because they can't af- because the cost of childcare is more than they'd make from their jobs. So it's cheaper for them to stay home and just look after their children. Well, the uh, Build Back Better plan accounts for affordable childcare. You know, it accounts for things like paid leave and that's why you need to call your representatives and, you know, uh, tell them to vote for the Build Back Better plan. You know, it obviously it has to be a bit more polished than what I just said, but it's not so hard to actually just get in front of a
1: microwave and say something. You just have to make the effort. No, I think you're right. I think um Joy, to your point as well, the idea that like, you know, a lot of these policies, a lot of just the fact that, you know, these bills are passing doesn't mean much if you know, you're going to the gas pump and you're paying a dollar more than you were last year, or if you're going to the grocery store, like Nathan- like Nathaniel talked about, and you're paying more for- on milk, things like that. But I think that what you're saying is is right in the sense that, you know, um, if you talk about what's in these bills and how it's helping, the fact that you're getting, you know, these added, uh, these tax uh, credit boosts um, toward things like child care and, and, and and healthcare, and um, uh, like we talked about pre-K and those sorts of things, that's important. But I think it's also like this larger narrative that we have to talk about. And admittedly, I would say Joe Biden, um, while I <laughs> was a big supporter of him in the primary, I would say that he's probably not as great as at this, is the fact that there's a larger narrative here. If these, the reason why you need $7,200 extra from the government and tax credit is because there's been 30 years where Democratic and Republican administrations have failed you where we should have been moving our social programs along all this time and you should have already had this type of money you should have already had these types of programs and because you haven't for the last 30 years we have to pass it in this giant bulk legislation that is going to run up our deficit a little bit but we're going to get that on the back end or we're going to get that through you know taxes on uh millionaires and billionaires who aren't frankly aren't paying uh some of them anything in taxes (laughs) and most of them very little compared to you know how well they've done in these in the economy of the past 30 years and i think that if you're able to connect those two messages the idea that yeah it inflation is going up because you're getting more money you're getting more money right now because you weren't getting more money over the past 30 years and so we're we gotta ride this thing out, but we're going it'll even itself out later on down the road and that's what makes it more worth it. I think if you're able to make that argument to the American people, I think people will understand that at least to some degree um, as long as you can get over you know a lot of the the media hype. Yeah,
0: you know the thing the theme of this whole first year because you have to remember this is still Biden's first year in office is that he's doing things that resonate with people or rub people the wrong way at first, but they have a long-term effect. The withdrawal from Afghanistan now early on as opposed to next year or 2023 when folks are going to be announcing on the other side that they're jumping into the race. I mean, politically speaking, and I know you know, it can sound crass to speak about foreign policy and, and things in terms of that relate to the military in political terms, but when you really look at it, realistically he's allowing it enough distance to be between now and when folks go to the polls to express whatever it is on their minds or, or you know whatever the burden is first and foremost on their minds at that moment and the thing about the public is public opinion in, in the United States is so fickle uh, in addition to that you, you know in that same vein I would say he's doing you know he got this infrastructure bill passed which was huge. You even have McConnell saying, oh, uh, you know, this is a godsend, you know, and, and, and that's amazing to have McConnell saying that Nate and I spoke, you know, Nate said, you know, he needs to have that clip. Jamie Harrison needs to take the clip of McConnell saying that and run that for the next year and a half. <laughs> but, you know, McConnell out pra- praising it, McConnell, who is the chief obstructionist himself, um, you know, going ahead and, and, and making such a, you know making you know throwing lavish praise on this bill it it really is a huge achievement um in addition it's like you got it's it's hard because you know these things do have economic benefits i mean the fact that if you're not making over four hundred thousand dollars you're not going to be your taxes are not going to be increased you know that should have hit home more with people a lot of people are like how is this going to impact the deficit how is this, this is going to raise my taxes my grandkids can't pay for this and then that coupled with the IRS rule that requires, you know, accounts making, I think, over $600, they're, they're going to be, look, I mean, these things are not, the, the, the average American is not f- impacted negatively. Those, those things were put in place to catch people, like you said, Nate, who were trying to take advantage of loopholes in the tax code so that they can get off sc- scotch-free as they've always done. And so you have another side really spinning this narrative of it's going to cost you a lot of money how who's going to pay for all these wild liberal wish list agenda items and people are like yeah yeah and and the other side is like just passively saying no if, you know if you're not making 400,000 it's not going to affect your taxes we need to be more aggressive with that in my view
4: I absolutely agree and I think that even when Ethan was speaking I think that that's one of the things that resonated for me is that people don't even really know what's going on at the very basis of things. You know, people just hear about, oh, we're gonna get taxed more. And somebody like me, I'm poor. Okay, at the very end of the day, you know, I'm not a one percenter, you know what I'm saying? So I understand, but I don't think that there's many people who are in that class who understand exactly what it means for a certain group to be taxed more or for us to not be taxed as much, you know? And so I think that. What the administration, what the Biden administration needs to focus on a lot more is educating people on or educating those who will be taxed or separating those two classes. Because I think that, like, you know, just on a very basic level, if you go on Twitter, everybody thinks that they're about to be twat, taxed. And I'm like, "Baby, you're not about to be taxed. You make 75,000 a year. They're not worried about you. Okay? They're not worried about me. They're not worried about the girl who's next to me, you know, but I think that people don't know that. And I think that there is definitely a disconnect between what the administration wants to do and what people are perceiving is actually going to happen. Um, and I think that that's where a lot of the pushback is or that's where a lot of, you know, the fighting is, like, "Oh no, we're going to get taxed." but it's like, no, they're not, they're not worried about us. I promise you they're not, but you know, I think that there's that, that just like, oh no tax, you hear the word tax, you hear the word, you know, people bipartisan, you hear all these things and you're just like, oh no, I need to be worried for myself. And so I think that there is definitely on the Biden administration, I think that there is, there need to be a little bit more responsible on educating who is going to be actually taxed. So people can be like, oh, Oh, it's not me. It's gonna be the people who make way more money than me. You know what I'm saying? And that makes more sense. But I think that to the everyday person, they're just like, they just hear tax. They just hear your if you make a certain kind of income, you're gonna be taxed. And they're just they're just like, this is concerning to me. And so I think that there's definitely that disconnect. I think it's a large disconnect between people understanding who is gonna truly be, you know, suffering from these we're not suffering because they make so much money they're not really suffering but i don't think people really understand those kind of implications and so i think that there definitely needs to be kind of that alignment between you know people understanding exactly who is this bill affecting and you know who is who it's negatively effect impacting well,
0: that's a good point and, and you know just to put the bill in perspective right the bipartisan infrastructure bill is like 1.2 trillion when you look at Eisenhower's highway, the, the you know the highway system that Dwight Eisenhower was responsible for in the 1950s, that is only about 500 billion in today's money, with you know the you know inflation taken into account. This is how big this this achievement is, and you know today everyone praises that you know Eisenhower administration specifically for that achievement. And that was an era where we expected government to do big things. You know, Jack Kennedy challenged us to, to, to you know, to beat Russia to space, um, to get a man on the moon. Eisenhower did the, uh, you know, NASA was established in the 1950s. The highway system was 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 built. Uh, we had more freedom to go from coast to coast. The Lyndon Johnson's Great Society, Richard Nixon came in. He, you know, for today's estimates, he would be more of a progressive than we would think because, you know, the EPA was established. You had Nixon actually coming together with a commission to create uh, black millionaires. And, you know, from Reagan all the way up to Obama or or say Reagan to to 2020, Trump, there seemed to be this idea that we're we're not to expect drastic or big bold moves from government anymore. I think Biden is trying to break that mold. Um, And a lot of folks are kind of turned off by that. But At the same time, like Ethan said, these things were just so desperately needed for such a long period of time that people, you have Mitch McConnell embracing this thing, talking about we can finally get the the Brent Spence Bridge in Cincinnati finally, um, (laughs) finally repaired. And that bridge has been something that, you know, you go back to Obama, he said, we need to repair that bridge. Trump said we need to repair that bridge. Now we can actually repair it with, with all the funds going in. And when you look at the items that are in this thing, transportation, roads, bridges, major projects, 110 billion, passenger and freight, 66 billion, public transit, 39 billion, airports, 25 billion, port infrastructure, 17 billion. You have broadband in there for about $65 billion. I mean, access to the internet in rural areas. You know, I mean, this is amazing. I mean, clean drinking water, 55 billion. And, And, you know, the fact that it's so broad and covers so much. Donnie Deutsch, to your point, Joy, <laughs> On, he said this week, you know, why do we say build back better? Why don't we just say this is an economy bill? People understand that. It's an economy bill. It has so many tentacles, so many facets, and it, it, it influences, you know, you have young kids. This actually helps you be able to raise those kids. If you, if you have, you know, hearing, you know, hearing or medical, hearing or vision problems, this addresses that. You it's like you name it. It's in that bill. Right. In terms of what's what you need. Uh, Maya.
2: Um, Yeah, I was just going to say, though, really quickly, um, I think we I mean, we've all kind of touched on it. It's been an undertone. But it's just as far as messaging, you know, public image, what you're portraying, what you're putting out. And I think Biden is just not the person for it as much as people thought he was. And I know he tried to play, you know, this moderate, centrist. I'm what America needs at a time like this role. And that's fine that that was kind of his narrative. But in terms of just basic appeal, basic, you know, being able to, like you said, Joy kind of mentioned, explain these things, educate people. I think he's kind of failing in that segment. And if it, that's usually to me, that's what a vice president is for is to balance out those, you know, pros and cons where one is more, can do more po- policy related and move things around in Congress. Why isn't Kamala um, ha- having more of a forefront. I feel like she only gets to make an appearance if it's something like foreign relations related, usually with the black and brown community, then she gets a chance to say anything. But other than that, I don't think she's been allowed to play uh, enough of a role in this. And I think she could, especially like Joy was saying, so many people are so worried about, you know, this, this extra tax when really it has nothing to do with them. Kamala, I feel like is a person who could come in, you know, with it, Joe, or with other, you know, Democratic leaders, it's always usually an afterthought to say like, oh, but this isn't going to impact you. And I feel like Kamala could, if given the opportunity, be the one to come out and kind of put that in the forefront. Like it's not an afterthought. It's not a response. It is, this is what we're doing to these top, you know, 1%, over 400,000. Most of you will be fine. This is what we're doing with the money. This is why we chose these people. They really owe this anyway. So it's more so playing catch up than it is to, you know, strip them of everything they've earned. I think it's also, you have to realize like that toxic mindset of capitalism has done a number on people. And so even people that do understand that it's only for, uh, you know, income above whatever 400,000, people still have in their mind, like, well, that could be me. It may not be me now, but it could be, it may be. And you know, that not that that's a bad mindset to have, but even if, you know, that is the case, What's wrong with paying your fair share in that privacy? like, I think a lot of people, this is like, you know, kind of off to the side of the tangent, but I feel like it's like a new professional goal for everyone is to be a millionaire or a billionaire. Like that's where everybody's mind is, no matter what industry they're in, everybody is thinking, you know, that's who I'm going to be. And so, no, I don't want to support that because one day, you know, if that's the kind of precedent we're setting that it's okay to attack the rich people, what about when I become the rich people? So I say all that to say, I think Kamala or anyone else, maybe, but specifically her as her role as vice president and being who she is, could come in and kind of unpack that for people and make it a little bit more relatable. Um, I think the administration itself could do some more work around, like I said, messaging and educating um, some of the cabinet leaders who have not been as vocal, which is not, you know, normally a part of their uh, duties in the first place, but At a time like this, where you have, like you said, such a big overarching bill that touches so many things, I think it's the time for them to, like, really come together and and put out uh, a better narrative of what this is doing for the American people.
1: Yeah, my, you know, there's that old saying that um, in America, everyone views themselves as a temporarily inconvenienced millionaire. I think that speaks to what you were talking about. Um, But, uh, you know, I was remarking the other day with a friend that... um, who's really stepped up in this moment actually has been pete Buttigieg, as the secretary of transportation i mean he's kind of in charge of a lot of you know this budget and and the way that it'll he'll be able to oversee a lot of you know how this money is spent i mean i he's been on uh, cable news a lot and he's been pretty effective in his communication about you know especially when he starts talking about you know the racist history of a lot of uh, transportation specifically highways and other of infrastructure and the ways that it really damaged uh, economically um, damaged Black communities throughout the country. Um, he's actually done a really effective job, I think, of communicating that um, in a way that I agree. I think that uh, Kamala Harris could be another person who could uh, really speak to that. Especially, um, we start talking about things like you know clean uh, drinking water and. and And our community, you know, first things that come to mind is is Flint and and Newark and places like that with these old lead, you know, uh, pipes and and water systems that need uh, filtration, that sort of thing. Um, Another thing that came to mind though, um, when we're talking about um, the repairs that are necessary for our highways and bridges, and we're talking about, you know, uh, transporting goods like that's, that's, that is that's our inflation problem, right? Is the fact that we're not able to get, you know, there's the, these ports in LA that have everything that we ordered on Amazon, and those things aren't able to ship across the country because um, a number of things, including, you know, lack of truck drivers, but just this fact that our roads and bridges are so poorly deteriorated that even as those goods are coming to us, they're just coming slower.
0: And, and you also had Biden uh, hitting the road uh, yesterday uh in Baltimore. Um, and you know, he said, you know, of course he chose one of the oldest ports in the country to do so. And a lot of people said, you know, why wasn't he at a manufacturing plant, or why was he at, you know, Toledo, Ohio, or why wasn't he, you know, somewhere in Middle America or somewhere in a purple state that could help us election chances? And he chose Maryland, you know, to 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 go ahead and start the the campaign of promoting this bill. And you know, he said, you know, I'm tired of this trickle-down economy stuff. I come from Delaware. Just the lineup here, and you know, those everyone on this platform knows that, you know, everyone been to law school. We know Delaware is like the corporate capital, right? And so, you know, he said, the fact of the matter is, it's time for you know these corporations to start paying their fair share. If you have fifty-five corporations last year, um, that in fact made forty billion dollars, they, they they did not pay a single penny in taxes. Um, he said, nobody, nobody's going to pay more if you make less than four hundred grand. You're not going to pay anything more in taxes at all, period, guaranteed, including gasoline tax, <laughs> not going to additional from a federal government standpoint. And, and you know, I, I think that the administration, you know, of course, they could do a better job, but I think they're doing something. I think they're doing something. Um, I think they're doing something. Um, but you also have to, to put into context, you have another side that, it, you know, you have Trump actually saying... Target those folks who voted for this bipartisan deal, and make their lives hell. <laughs> We're going to destroy these people. Um, you have on the other side, in addition to the Fox machine, the Newsmax machine, and, and all the other right-wing media outlets, you have a movement of people. You know, e- even within the Congress, uh, you know, Gosar calling um, Fred Upton and and leaving a, a, a death-threatening voicemail on his phone. I mean. Two congressmen um, are both elected in their own right. Um, and I, I think it's amazing to have, you know, to sell a bill like this where you have literally Mitch McConnell on on your side. And, and and it's still difficult because of the fact that the other side has a blow horn that they've been using for the past five years at least or, you know, since Trump went down that Escalator. Um, and it's just amplified uh, over time. Um, and President Biden has denounced efforts to strip Republicans uh, who supported the infrastructure bill of their committee standing. Um, you know, the New York Times yesterday reported that one caller uh, instructed Representative Adam Kinzinger of Illinois to slit his wrists uh, and rot in hell. Um, another hoped Representative Don Bacon of Nebraska would slip and fall down a staircase. Um, you know, in the days since 13 House Republicans broke with their parties, with the party leaders and voted for the $1 trillion legislation. They've been flooded by meaningless message, uh, menacing messages from voters, uh, and even some of their own colleagues, um, Trump's frequent threats and insults directed at Republicans, whom he considers insufficiently loyal, have created powerful incentives for the party's lawmakers to issue similarly, similar statements. Um, you know, even last week's infrastructure bill, I mean, infrastructure, infrastructure vote has prompted intra-party warfare. And, and so what's interesting is that this is not even happening on the senate side. you know, this is all on the house side. so my question is, you know, why are house republicans who voted for the bipartisan infrastructure bill being punished while senators like mcconnell are not?
2: Well, I think,
3: sorry, go ahead.
2: Um, honestly, you probably know a little bit more, but i was just going to say really quickly i think just in general we all know like the stakes are a little bit higher in the senate whereas i guess in the house you expect um how am I trying to say? Like, the, I don't know. The house usually kind of sets the pace for things. I think it's, uh, you know, just because there's more members there in general, and the like the stakes are not as high, it's kind of easier to, um, you know, like stake your own claim. Like you don't have to always pay attention to the to the numbers and the party dynamics and the lines. It's kind of easier in that regard. So I feel like with that, there's more accountability because. The stakes aren't as high in terms of you know keeping keeping the numbers or whatever and in, in certain arrangement um and i guess like i said with the senate um there's a little bit more accountability or less in that regard whichever i think i said it backwards but that's what i meant
3: i would also add that structurally you know in the house elections are every two years as opposed to the senate once you get elected you're there for another six years so mitch mcconnell just got re-elected he's there till january 27 2027 at least So it's a lot easier to go after people in the House. And that was Trump's favorite tactic back when he was president. You know, if someone in the House didn't say something, or if he didn't like someone in the House enough, he would just endorse one of their primary opponents and then work with them instead. You know, he'd go to their district and campaign for them. It's a lot easier to go after someone who is representing a smaller region because they can flip the people in their region, which McConnell might not be popular in the Cincinnati suburbs of Kentucky, but he could theoretically go after his bases in a different part of the state and just work with that. It's not the same thing you can do with the House. It's also um, easier since the House is the, you know, everyone assumes that the House is going to flip, you know, after the midterms. So the, the, the question for Trump, I guess, would be by how much? So if he can at least get, a bunch of Republican seats to flip and flip the Republican seats that held to people that he likes and that are more ideologically aligned with him, it makes it that much easier in his head for 2024 when he decides to run again, that if he wins, he has it even easier with House Republicans. As far as the Senate, he knows that most of them are going to support him anyway, because he literally sent a crowd to go kill them, and they still didn't vote to uh, ban
1: him from running for president. So that date to that exact point and in a lot of ways this is McConnell and a lot of the congressional Republicans uh in leadership this is their chickens coming home to roost right I remember you know I'm old enough to remember um back in 2009 2000 uh right when President Obama was elected and I believe it was uh one Mitch McConnell of Kentucky who said our job is to make President Obama a one-term president by obstructing everything in his agenda. Marjorie Taylor Greene was just saying that we should, these 13 Republicans who helped um, President Biden's agenda pass, they should be primaried or they should you know, face consequences in the same uh, vein as McConnell said in the past. And to Nate's point, um, these are also a lot of the most outspoken members of Congress who are you know, saying these horribly objectionable, uh, objectively awful things that they're saying to uh, the supporters of this bill, these are also insurrectionists that should not be in this part, that should not be seated in Congress right Right. now in the first place. Marjorie Taylor Greene doesn't have committee positions because of horrible things that she said even before the insurrection. Like, these are people who shouldn't be in Congress anymore, and if congressional leadership won't expel them, this is what happens. No, and the thing is, like, when you look at this bill, this is going to predominantly help rural
0: ruby red rural states that don't have broadband you would think that a lot of these people would actually be promoting this more and more so that their respective republican candidates can come home and say i brought home the bacon but this is so personal for trump right he wanted to be mr bridge and mr road he wanted to be mr fix it he look, when you go back to the 2016 uh convention his daughter ivanka came out and introduced him as a builder they had a big video about how he builds things. And they created this whole narrative about what Trump is, you know, how he makes deals and he's constructed these buildings. And, you know, they, they ignored all of the foreclosure <laughs> and, and the folks he cheated. And they focused on the fact that, look, he's a builder. And so he's going to get our country a great deal. And the fact that, you know, Biden comes out <laughs> and he says, infrastructure week, finally, it just gets under this guy's skin, you know? and And so finally, he's like, you know, it, you could just see that this thing is just intensified because of how personal it is. I mean, everything for him is personal, but the, but specifically the fact that he wanted this so badly in his administration um, and it didn't happen. Biden comes along, beats him in 2020, you know, makes him the thing he doesn't want to be, a loser. And then on top of that, uh, is able to get this thing done and gets, gets Republicans who were literally, you know, paving the the, the floors for him. To to now endorse this bill. I mean, you could imagine how irate he is at this moment, um, because of that. So, I mean, I d- I just wanted to add that in there because there's a lot going on here. You know, it's, uh, I know that we're thinking, you know, down the road to 22 and 24, but Trump is thinking of now. You know, he wants revenge. This is a guy who's, you know, when 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 he's embarrassed, he he he's gonna come at you with all he's got, his full force.
1: Um, Can I also just add uh, quickly, like as much as we should rightfully admonish a lot of these um, Republicans who are resistant to the support for this bill, there's also people in the Democratic caucus who voted against this bill. And it, and I understand that they have different motivations for why they did, but this is part of the reason why it seems frankly embarrassing that they voted against um, this bill. Bill, regardless of what their true intentions were, it gets swept up in this narrative, and I think that that's an important thing to at least point out that, uh, however noble these uh, progressive members of Congress uh, felt that they were being by resisting uh, this bill for for objectively interest or um, empathetic reasons, but it 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 gets washed over when you have members of Congress literally sending death threats to other members of Congress for their support on this. And, and, you know, this is a bill
0: that would have been passed with ease, <laughs> whether it was the Obama administration, the Bush administration, the Clinton administration, the Bush 41 administration. I mean, you go down the list of the past administrations, this bill, it would have been a no-brainer. You know, it would have been politically poisoned to, to vote against it. But, but, you know, the New York Times actually reported that some of these Republicans who voted against it conceded publicly that they would have backed such a bill had the political circumstances been different complaining that Democrats had poisoned the well by pushing a separate 1.85 trillion social safety net climate and tax plan at the same time. Um, uh, you know, you have Kevin McCarthy, uh, who's vying to be the next speaker saying Mr. Biden should have focused just on infrastructure. Um, he said, you know, but they want to do, but what they want to do is restructure and transform America. If they bought just an infrastructure bill by itself, uh, up, you would find overwhelmingly Republicans want to work with you and get one through. My thing is, like, if we, the whole fact that this was a two-track process was to accommodate to these Republicans, Uh, because initially this was a one, I remember the days when this was a one huge, humongous bill. They separated the two, and that still wasn't enough, it, it, because, not because anything was wrong with this bill, it's just because we don't want what you're going to do next. So the, <laughs> it's, it's, I mean, the thing is just, the, the, the way that folks are voting now, it's inconceivable. If you go back just 10 years ago, 20 years ago, people will be like, no, that, that's political science fiction or something. That's not going to happen.
4: And for me, I feel like I think that it was to what Maya was saying a lot earlier. I think that's why it's so important that the vice president speaks or that the vice president has a certain kind of say in this conversation. Um And I think that that's why it's so monumental that she hasn't said anything, you know, legitimate or that she hasn't said anything that has really contributed to this conversation. Because I think that, you know, Vice President Harris has a position to speak for a lot of people who are whose voices are not in this conversation, you know, and not just as, you know, black women, but just for like minorities, anybody who's really not a white man, you know, It's like she has a position to be able to speak for so many people. And the silence is like, I think, to a lot of people, is just like, you know, what stake do I have in this? For voters, what stake do I have in this? This is just between, you know, Joe Biden, Mitch, Mitch McConnell and friends. Those are a bunch of white men. What what stake do I have in this? And so I feel like it's very, it's very interesting to me um, that the Biden administration hasn't utilized her more in terms of speaking to that minority, because I do think that that minority was a lot of the reason why Biden is in the position that he's in now. You know what I'm saying? And so for me, I think that my... You know, what kind of raises some red flags in my brain is that we don't have vice president. She's the vice president of the United States of America. And we have not heard any kind of substantial input on this bill or really many of the decisions that, you know, the Biden administration has made in general. And I think that in that intent, there has to be some kind of intent in not letting a black woman who is a vice president speak Um, Or at least having her represent something, you know what I'm saying? I feel like in that respect, that's definitely doing a disservice to um, the Biden, you know, base of supporters or whoever might potentially go to his side, because I think that A lot of voters, a lot of people who could potentially be voting are just like, where does, where do I fall in this? This doesn't seem like it's much of my battle. And because Vice President Harris hasn't said much, I think that that leaves the Biden administration at a disadvantage a little bit, because I think that they could utilize that extra step to get, you know, more people on their side. And I think Maya touched on on that perfectly, that Vice President Harris has, a, I think that she has a lot of power in this particular realm um, that's not being utilized utilized properly. And for me, it raises the question, like, why? What's going on? As somebody who is, you know, who knows what's going on, who knows the ways that these things need to be skewed, why are we not utilizing that specific voice um, to, you know, talk to more voters, talk to more non-voters or people just in general who could support this bill or not support this bill or who are on the fence? So I think for me, just like the non-participant non-participation by president, I mean, Vice President Harris is just like question mark, question mark, question mark, because it's just, it, it really doesn't make sense to me from the Biden administration standpoint. Um, and it only seems to benefit the other side if, you know, somebody who is of that minority and of that standing is not speaking up or not speaking out or not trying to get people like, oh, you know what, guys, this is what we need to be voting for. So that kind of raises some questions in my brain. Also I'm to add
1: to say- that,
3: Sorry, go ahead. Well, also to add that the whole point of Kamala Harris being on the, t- was, you know, that he, both she and Biden uh, advertised that they were going to be a full partnership the way Obama and Biden were. And that she'd be the consultant, that she'd be the advisor, the way that Obama leaned on Biden, Biden would lead on her. So it also raises a serious question for the Biden legacy, because Biden campaigned on being a caretaker and literally handpicked Kamala Harris to be his, uh, you know, to be his successor as the Democratic Party leader, the way that the same way that uh, Obama kind of picked uh, Joe Biden, and also kind of picked Hillary Clinton. So, you know, for, for, to have her not actually be at the forefront uh, speaking is very, you know, questionable as to what the point was if you weren't going to use her anyway. Knowing that she has this base, knowing that she um, has people that she reaches that she added to the ticket. Uh, 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 electorally speaking, excuse me. Um, also the fact that White House Chief of Staff Ron Klein even said passing the bipartisan bill would not have been possible without without the White House MVP without Kamala Harris. So why isn't why isn't this being said on the talk shows? Why isn't she actually out in front, you know, speaking in Ohio? Well, you know, Joe Biden can speak in uh, Baltimore, but why isn't Kamala speaking in Ohio? Why isn't she speaking in Detroit? Why isn't she speaking in Milwaukee to say, here's everything that's in the
2: bill? And I just wanted to say really quick, I think that's gonna do them a disservice in the long run because one, there's already kind of the skepticism from black voters about what do we actually get for our vote when we go so hard for these people and are basically not you know, the sole reason, but a major reason of why he was able to be elected to office and beat Trump in the manner that he did. So you already have that kind of skepticism. Now you have Vice President Harris there not really saying anything. I think you already kind of have this sentiment among black people that like black faces in high places is not the end all be all because things like this happen where they get there and they don't say anything or they change their views and kind of try to appease those that they're now peers with. And it ends up kind of backfiring on the people that got you there in the first place. And so I feel like if she doesn't say anything soon and they just kind of keep her in the shadows and then all of a sudden in 24, when it's time for, you know, re-election thing, and then she wants to come back to the forefront again, it's going to be like, okay, well, nobody wants to hear it. Like, it's insincere. You already played the whole Black woman card, first Black VP, you played the, you know, HBCU card, you played the D9 card, and it got us nothing. You sat quietly the entire time. So nobody's going to want to hear that then. So I think it's doing... Her as her brand, whatever she plans to, you know, her endeavors post presidency um, and Biden, his administration, I think is doing them a great disservice um, amongst black and brown voters not to have her say, especially when, you know, she's capable. If she was maybe like, you know, Sarah Palin or somebody like she served her purpose and she was there and then you understand why she's not getting a chance to say so much. But Kamala, we know, is very articulate, very able to appeal to people when she wants to. And have those conversations as she did when she was campaigning as president and as vice president so that fact that we know she's capable we've seen her do it and it's like there's a specific like joy said there's a specific reason why and that silence is very i think deafening to a lot of people and they will remember when it's time to go back and vote in 2024.
0: to, to, to the Biden administration's defense um you know when there was a shortage declaration uh, which was the first ever declared shortage declaration on the Colorado River. Uh, I know Harris went over to the Western states to just promote and tout what this bill would mean um, for, you know, states like California, Arizona, um, that were really facing this drought. Um, and so I think really Biden's style is more with this old school style where the, the president's the star of the show. <laughs> you know, and if you notice, Pete Buttigieg is a different Buttigieg from when he was on the campaign stump. You know, he's not the flashy Buttigieg out in the front. You know, he's He's he knows his role, and and I think he also has aspirations for the White House as well. But you know, Biden's the star role, um, and everyone else plays second fiddle. But I think I think it's a matter of style. But I do, you know, time is getting away, okay. and I want to touch on this. T- <laughs> I want to touch on this trial, uh, the Kyle Rittenhouse trial. Um, you know, this is such a, a an amazing you know, trial that's unfolding. Uh, let, let me say that um, a lot of you know the theatrics that took place yesterday um well let me start off by this what stood out to me was that rittenhouse when when questioned by the prosecutor said i believe um ar15s can shoot at a distance but i don't know i'm not an expert on ar15s he also said i don't know much about ammo when pressed a little bit harder now the judge of course i think you know he had legitimacy and, and what he was saying in terms of the prosecutors, say, you know, trying to use the silence, you know, everyone on the platform knows, but folks who may not have gone to law school may not know, you know, if you have a defendant who exercises their uh, right to remain silent. The prosecutor cannot bring that into evidence to, to suggest that the defendant was guilty. Um, that, you know, of course, was the whole purpose of having uh, a Fifth Amendment right um, and so the fact that he was saying, I'm not using this for that purpose, but I'm using it to impeach the witness. I'm using it to impeach him. And the judge went off. Of course, he sent the jury out the room, but there are moments when the jury was not sent out the room and the judge went off. And what's also noteworthy is that in Wisconsin, judges are elected. Um, <laughs> and so the judge also accused the prosecutor of being of beginning to testify himself. He said that Rittenhouse's state, uh, you know, because the, the prosecutor prosecutors trying to pull out of Rittenhouse, you know the fact that he on a previous occasion had stated that he uh, wanted to bring he he wish he had his his weapon, um and the and the judge refused to allow that in, um you know he he wanted to bring in the fact that he punched a teenage girl from behind repeatedly, the judge didn't want to let that in. And you know you, you couldn't help but think if if Kyle Rittenhouse were to write the script himself. It couldn't have it couldn't be better for him at this moment in my view. Um, in addition to the makeup of the jury, predominantly a white jury um, and the fact that uh, this jury has been exposed to seeing the judge lash out on the prosecutor in this way. Uh, and I know you know it may be common for judges to do this, but when the jury sees it, to me that's prejudicial because the jury will say, well, I was already leaning in his direction anyway, but now this has given me validation to lean more. Um, I'm wondering, you know, the, the burden of proof the prosecutor has to meet is beyond a reasonable doubt. In your view, can the prosecutor meet that standard, that burden of proof that Kyle Rittenhouse um, intended to use deadly force beyond a reasonable doubt?
4: I think that once you have, <laughs> I think that it's hard because once you have somebody on the stand saying that they didn't think an AR or something, was going to injure somebody or hurt somebody or kill somebody. And AR, I'm sorry, I don't play video games. I don't play black ops. I don't play whatever video games are out on the streets these days. But I know that a gun that begins in AR something is going to kill somebody. And so I think that reasonability, especially in the way, like Mike, you mentioned the way that the judge has been constantly on the prosecution, just, oh, no, that's not admissible. Oh, no, we said that. You know what I'm saying? It's hard for a jury to be. It's it's, to me, it seems like to prove beyond a reasonable doubt, you're going to have to be working against the judge at this point. That's what it seems like. It seems like you're going to have to outdo, undo everything the judge has been saying. And so it's difficult as a juror, I would think, to be like, oh, I mean, if the judge is saying, you know, all these things, I think that they know the they know the law. They've been doing this for a while. Like, who am I to just be like, oh, no, they're wrong. So I think that that's already against the side of the prosecution. Um, but furthermore, reasonability, I feel like, as we all know, is just such a it can be turned on so many different things, depending on your, you know, your experiences, you know, if you're somebody who does shoot guns, that could change your view of reasonability. If you're somebody who's never touched a gun that could change your view of reasonability. And so I think that with the fact that, I mean, the judge has just been on the prosecution, like time and time again, as a juror, I think that that would make it more difficult for me to decide that this is beyond a reasonable doubt, you know, that, this is what happened. And I think that probably that's what prosecution wants. I mean, what the defense wants rather to not have, you know, to have those kind of, oh, is this really beyond a reasonable doubt? A reasonable doubt is such a small thing. And so I think that it's hard at this point for the jurors to come out with their own conclusion that is beyond a reasonable doubt to say, you know, okay, well, you know what? He had all these opportunities to not do this and he still did this. I think that it's difficult. Honestly, I really do.
0: And and what's what's also interesting is that the judge also said, "I don't believe you." When he said, "I was trying to act in good faith," that was done in the presence of the jury. There are certain things that the judge was valid when I will I will give them that. You know, the fact that you're trying to open up the door when we already settled in chambers that we're not going to go in this area. You know, I okay. But when you start to say, "Look, I do not believe you're acting in good faith," that wasn't to me that was unnecessary, and to me that was straight auditioning for votes and donations. Um, And you know, even the fact that you know the display of emotion, conveniently when we get to the point where you kill somebody, and the fact that the reporter and reporters reported that the jury, a lot of them started to look sympathetic to him. I mean, these are the the things that were just not said. The verbal the verbal messages that were sent. The fact that when the when when he was crying, the judge handed him a bottle of water, and 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 broke out for a break. All of those things to me, I mean, a, a lot. A lot stood out to me, but all of those unspoken messages uh, also stood out to me.
2: The cell phone thing—did you guys re- read or hear about that too? That also—I felt like at that point it was like the the jokes are kind of writing themselves. Like, I don't know what what more clear cut way, but I think, like you said, I, I, at this point the judge is kind of making it impossible to prove that beyond because you know, when you hear these legal terms and like phrases, like, you know, people are familiar with beyond a reasonable doubt, but in layman's terms, a juror is going to try to simplify it like as much as they can. So I feel like when you hear that, your first thought is like, okay, so it has to be like super obvious, like clear cut, like they're going to put it in some kind of, you know, easily digestible terms. And when you have somebody like the judge, who's also, you know, just naturally in the way that a courtroom functions has this figure superior you know kind of figure into how everything is functioning as a juror when you look at that and every piece of vital information that would have gave you that like clear cut line is being kind of like poked at and nitpicked then it like joy said pretty much leaves you no other option but to kind of follow in that direction so while i think like just as a case in general it could be proven by the way that this trial is actually going i don't think there's a a shot for beyond reasonable doubt.
0: and the the fact that he Said, this is, he acknowledged this is, he was very much coached. Okay. The fact that, you know, the prosecutor started by saying, look, you bought this AR 15 with the intent to kill, didn't you? No, I, I wanted to avoid a threat from happening to me. I mean, that's straight out of a textbook of stopping um, imminent harm from coming your way and using self defense. And then the fact that he was like making it seem like he came to wrap folks up in bandages. You know that was really the purpose of why he was there—to render medical aid—as um, if he was like this boy scout who was just out looking to be a do-gooder. That to me stood out because it was a contradiction. I was—you're walking around with a, a gun that people can't—you know—it's not a pistol; you can't put it in your pants or, anything, or your, your, your side pocket. This is a again—you get a strap on your back. You're walking proudly, and you're going to tell me that you're rendering medical aid. So explain to me why was it that you were not expecting to have to use this gun? Like you say, um, I didn't want to have to use the gun. Um, I didn't expect to use the gun. But why did you have it? And then the judge starts to intervene and says, you know, what are you getting at here? And then the written the, the house kind of seems to me, and of course, these are my views. These are my perspectives. Take the cue from the judge and say, I don't understand the question. I mean, all of these things just, just point to me in one direction. <laughs> and we've seen this, we've seen this movie before. Um, and and the fact that, you know, in evidence, you can't show propensity. You can't say, okay, you acted this way on one on one occasion. So therefore you acted like that here. But here you have him testifying that he was there to do good. He was there to, you know, render aid. He this was his community. He was comfortable there. But why did you yell friendly, 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 if you felt the need, like if you felt like you were not in danger why did you feel the need to arm yourself if you were not in danger? All of those things were left unanswered. Um, and when it was time to kind of hammer it, there was kind of a buffer between him and the prosecutor. Anyone else?
4: Um, I, I, I'm sorry, Ethan. I was just going to say that I think that even just like the, the the, I don't know what the right word is, but getting rid of procedural terms getting rid of those, like the, the fact the judge said, you know, you know, don't call, they're not victims. I think that that's to a jury, that's so persuasive. Those procedural terms are things that everybody, anybody knows from law and order, you know, whatever, CN, CSI, NCIS, you know, victim, you know, there's a defendant, you know, that there's prosecution, you know, that there's defense. And to get rid of those terms, is like, well, if there's no victim, then where's the crime? And so I think that, you know, even just getting rid of those basic things and the judge is doing that in his, you know, little comments in the, you know, just the way that the case is played out. And, you know, we all saw on Twitter, they were all talking about his ringtone. It's all of these things that are just getting rid of the, you know, getting rid of and minimizing the fact that people died and the people were killed. And I think that, you know, you don't really have to talk about the fact of the actions of what he did when you can just get rid of who he did it to. And so I think that that's that's kind of you know the judge and the prosecution. I mean, and the defense is kind of working together on that in terms of just getting rid of those. If you just dwindle away who 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 these crimes were committed against, then you don't really have to worry about the crimes. Oh, self defense. Oh, they weren't victims. They were robbers. They were arsonists. They were criminals. It's it just creates the narrative that there's not even a crime to be prosecuted. And so for me, I think that. That's where kind of my fault is or where I'm seeing things like that's kind of where they've decided to hone in on to just make the jury kind of think, oh, he was an innocent man, self-defense, somebody was running towards him, all these different things and just get rid of the victim, get rid of the crime altogether and just make it seem like it's a self-defense kind of thing. And I think that it's it's honestly crazy. It's honestly wild. I've never seen anything like that um, to just be like, oh, yeah, they're not victims. Nobody, They died, but... You know, I think that that's really monumental, like to just be like, oh, yeah, they're vic- they are they die. however, comma, but, you know, that's kind of crazy to me. And I think that that's a really, you know, the um, defense has been utilizing that to their advantage, you know, that these aren't these weren't I don't know if y'all watch Succession, but in Succession, they say there's no real person involved in the kind of crimes they commit. And that's kind of the way that they've tried to frame this, you know, thing. It's not real people, you know. They're not victims. They were criminals as is. I think that that's really monumental. As a juror, you're thinking, okay, well, then it's not that bad. It was just self-defense. It wasn't anything, you know. There wasn't anything wrong with what was done. And so I think that that kind of framing it in that light is helping them, and obviously diminishing the way that these people who were murdered look to the jurors.
0: Yeah, and and. The, you know, in Maya, even raised a point I wanted to raise about the picture. He was arguing to introduce this picture into evidence, but of course, you'd have to enlarge in it. The defense is saying that's altering the image because, you know, the, the algorithms and the pixels are going to be changing the And And, and the prosecutor is like, look, everybody every day <laughs> enlarges a picture some way or in some way or some form. This is a part of our regular lives. I mean, this is not altering the image. It's like using a magnifying glass. No one's going to say that that's altering the image. And what does the judge do? The judge says, well, since you want to bring this in as evidence, you get an expert and let them determine. I mean, there are certain things that were just, OK, these are the rules, these are guidelines of evidence. But then there were just things that just seemed so just ridiculous. And and that's putting it as light as I can. Um, but I want to ask you guys, you know, do you, do you think it was wise for the defense team to even put Rittenhouse on the stand in the first place as a witness when things already seem to be going in his direction?
1: I think we've seen some of the uh, the benefit to, to putting him on the stand. You know, there's, there's this conversation now about um, whether or not he was truly showing emotion. There's, you know, um, I watched a few minutes of the cross-examination from the prosecutor. Um, and even as someone with no empathy toward Kyle Rittenhouse, I felt like the prosecutor was kind of aggressive Uh, I felt like the prosecutor was kind of, you know, dismissive. I I felt like he had, you know, um, he didn't portray himself in a way that, you know, would elicit sympathy from a jury. And I'm not I'm not biased toward Kyle Rittenhouse defense in the least bit. Um, But you could tell that, you know, the the weight of the trial, the weight of of the judges, more or less blatant advocacy for the defendant in this case um, has definitely weighed on the prosecutor, and he was definitely, you know, unnerved um, by fighting what's frankly an uphill battle. Um, we talk about, you know, having a criminal justice system in the United States, and um, in a lot of cases, you know, it is important that defendants have, you know advocates that are protecting their rights especially throughout trials and those and things like that um where else is this done in the united states where where, what other courtrooms are there where you have judges who are this ardently this zealously defensive of a defendant's rights this doesn't happen in criminal trials let alone murder trials um let alone trials where the defendants are people of color um and i just hope um, and maybe hope is the wrong word, but I, my wish for America, my wish for, um, Kyle Rittenhouse and his advocates in this case is that maybe they take a second look at, um, how the criminal justice, in all the ways that they view that the criminal justice system and the prosecution in this case are biased against Kyle Rittenhouse, uh, put other people in Kyle Rittenhouse, same position and, and. In situations where the facts are far less um, du- uh, dubious, are much more clear cut as to that defendant's innocence, and and have the same level of empathy. This doesn't this doesn't happen. Criminal defendants hardly ever get this type of advocacy, let alone from a neutral party like a judge. Um, and you know, frankly. This maybe it should happen more, but it doesn't. This is this is yeah. And it's it's kind of it's just it's sickening, honestly.
0: Yeah, and you have conservative groups donating millions to his defense attorneys. Um, you know, and to your point, you you replace Kyle Rittenhouse, give put a black 18-year-old in his place who went and killed some folks. He would have been on the electric chair, probably if he lived, right? If he wasn't shot on the spot. Um and so, you know. That coupled with—I know we didn't touch on it tonight—but the Amart Arbery case, it, in both cases, you have you know Caucasian males going out of their way, taking it upon themselves to be judge, jury, and executioner, and now it's time for them to be on the, on, on on you know the hot seat, and now we've got to consider all kinds of other factors that could have been in play as to why you know they were well intentioned or why they had no other choice but to pursue the course of action they did. But you know the American justice system has a long way to go, but I do want to thank each of you. I know we went a, bit, a little bit over time. Uh, Nate Honore, uh, Ethan Zebediah, Maya Perry, Joy Vendora. I want to congratulate Ethan on, on his recent engagement. Maya on passing the bar. So much to celebrate. Um, congratulations to you both. Uh, I wish you all the best. Thanks for making the political mic such a dynamic episode tonight. I, there was so much that we should, that I wanted to get into, but you can only get into so much in, within a, an hour. Uh, But with that being said, I want to thank you one more time for making episode 51 a success. And I'm signing off. Thanks again.